Things are pretty good. I have a good job. I have great friends. I have an awesome girlfriend. Everything's great. I take after my family. And it's just the way I was raised. I don't really have enough time to volunteer. Work is just too crazy right now. But I'm, I'm pretty successful. I may have a few bad habits, but I'm still in control. I don't drink near as much as my father does. My relationship isn't perfect, but whose is? Come on, I'm not stuck in all this. I'm not stuck. I'm not stuck in this. I'm stuck. The story I'm about to tell you has so much theological weight that I shudder to think that I would actually have the courage to tackle it. But because we've been on a bit of a roll with just pressing into everything God has called us to in the last couple of weeks, we are going to go somewhere theologically that I'm afraid to go, but we're going to go there anyway. Here comes the weight of it. Winnie the Pooh loved honey. And he loved it so much that one day in the hundred acre wood, he made the decision to go to Rabbit's house. He went into Rabbit's house where he was invited for tea and Rabbit gave him honey, which everyone knows Winnie the Pooh loved more than anything. In that moment, that bear was seized by an undeniable sin, the sin of gluttony. And he began to eat honey in copious amounts to the point where his stomach expanded larger than the hole through which he had to exit. Can I get an amen? amen. The bear has to try and exit Rabbit's home and in doing so actually gets stuck. I love visual illustrations. Rabbit panics runs around the front of his home and asks the stuck bear, are you stuck? To which the bear replies, no, just resting and thinking and humming to myself. It's a moment of classic denial, right? All the psychologists in the room know how it works. The facts are revealed in a revelation in an, of unbelievably epic proportion and Rabbit says to the bear, to Winnie the Pooh, you are stuck. Well, this weekend, I'm going to play the rabbit, which makes all of you guys, you guys called yourself that. I did not say a word, okay? Rabbit's faced with a dilemma. What do you do with the backside of a stuck bear? The answer is this, if you know the classic story, <laughs> you decorate it. You try to change it so you don't have to face your reality. You mask it. You make it into something that it's not. You do your best to avoid and defer, to rename and replace. But the bottom line is, it is what it is until the bear gets free. It's a classic story. It's been told for years. I used to pretend that I was sick, so I had to miss the Baptist church service Sunday evenings because the wonderful world of Disney came on at the same time church was on. And the reason I wanted to stay home is I just wanted to watch that bear. It's a classic story. And the funny thing is, at some level, believe it or not, it kind of describes our reality. 
We don't like our stuck reality, and even more painful than our reality is the story of how we actually got to the hole in the first place. The Bible shares how people have actually been stuck since the beginning of time in the creation narrative. It's a beautiful story. The man and the woman are created into a perfect world, and there's no need to hide because there's nothing to hide from. They're perfect. There's no shame. There's no failure. There's just perfect relationship with God and between each other. God gives gracious instructions. He puts rules in place. You can eat from any tree that you want to, but that one, stay away from that one. It's not good if you eat from that one. God gives gracious instructions, but the temptation from the snake comes when he asks a question, a classic question. Did God really say? Did God really say that when we and the questions have been spinning to this day? Didn't God say that life should be easier if you're a Christian? Didn't God say that somehow you should get a bonus just because you're a good person? Didn't God say that, that, or did God say that his love could be used as an excuse to do whatever it was that you really wanted to? I mean, isn't that how it should work? By the way, officially, the answer is no to all of those questions, just in case you're wondering. The snake asks a question, human nature kicks in, and this is what happens. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid. And we've been hiding ever since. That's the reality of it. The very first people, they break a relationship with God and they do what humans do. They hide. And I'll say it again. And we've been hiding ever since. We hide behind the mask of humor. And we try to laugh away our pain and convince everybody that life's just a great big joke. We hide behind the mask of perception. We want everybody to think that we're something that we're actually not. We just want them to have this picture in, in their mind of, of who we actually think we might be. And there's the mask of denial, where we just pretend that what, that what is stuck in the hole in our life isn't what it is, and that somehow I can redecorate it, I can repaint it, I can turn it into something else. For some of us, it's the mask of, of sin management. We just ignore the pain, and we just survive moment to moment to moment to moment, and we call that life. And we wonder why we're so frustrated all of the time. Two weeks ago, I introduced you to my sin cycle. I always laugh. Whenever I do one of these diagrams and I tell people, this is my sin cycle, they try to correct it for me. And I'm just like, but you don't understand. It's mine. I didn't say it was yours. I said it was mine. And I said, you can somehow tap into it at some level, but if you can jump off at any other point, be my guest. That's great. But this is my sin cycle, and I, disguise, I talked about it, put it back in your outline again, how I always start with the flirting idea. It's kind of flirt with a desire, flirt with an idea of something that I know goes against God's, God's way, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do it anyway. And then I begin to explore it, and I play a game of truth or consequences inside of my brain, and I just wonder what will happen if I get caught. And then I start feeling this thing called entitlement, like I deserve it. 
I should get to sin a little bit because look at all this good stuff that I'm doing over here. And then I begin to justify or excuse it because after all, I know that I am the grand exception to all of God's rule. And then I have to make a decision whether I'm going to abandon a spiritual identity within me. Am I going to live like a son of God or not? Am I going to do what God says or not? And, and sometimes I just choose not to. I choose to love something else other than God and I act out. I sin, I make the choice, I do the deed, and because I've got a conscience, because I've got good old-fashioned Baptist guilt rooted in me, which is actually not a bad, bad thing, keeps you out of a lot of trouble, just saying, but because it's rooted deep inside of me, I actually experience guilt and shame. And I feel bad because of what I did. And sometimes I honestly and earnestly come and I confess and repent and I live as a child of the king and I exit the cycle. Sometimes the confession and repentance is, is honest and other times it's not very sincere and I just go right back to flirting with the next bad idea. This week I want to take some time to kind of tighten up the microscope and we're going to look at the cycle within the cycle. It kind of goes like this. It's this little one over here on, on the left-hand side of your diagram where you, you can get caught in another little spin cycle if you're not careful. When I act out and I, and I sin against God, I experience two powerful responses. Don't even like the words, but we're going to talk about them a lot. Guilt and shame. Now, I want to say this ahead of time, okay? I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm a pastor. So that means I approach this kind of stuff pastorally. So I can say this to you. I know when I've done something wrong. I just know. I made the choice, did the deed, went the wrong way, lost my way, told God, you know, I, I know better than you do, so I'm going to go this particular direction. And I know when in my gut I have not chosen God's way because I experience both guilt and shame. Now, I would define them this way because I think they're different. I believe guilt is this. It's I feel bad about what I did because I'm guilty. Okay? It's a state of being and it's an emotion. I feel guilty because I am. I did it. There's no blame shifting, no denial, no redecorating. I feel bad because I did it. That's guilt. Now, I'm going to tell you something. As a kid who grew up in the church, sometimes guilt is not a bad thing. In fact, sometimes I wish more people would experience a little bit of more guilt after they actually did something because they're actually responding to what the Holy Spirit is going, no, wrong direction. Guilt's not always a bad response, but sometimes, sometimes we, when we are guilty, we bring our guilt to God and we ask for forgiveness. It's not always bad when you're guilty, but this is what happens. The enemy likes to take the knife of guilt and twist it into something called shame. Shame believes that I am fundamentally flawed. There's a sense of internal com condemnation. And that's where in that little spin you begin to experience things that make you say this, I'm worthless, I'm never going to get it right, I'm hopeless, I'm a lost cause. That's shame. Shame is a tool of the devil because it prompts you to believe lies and to not believe about the identity that God has placed inside of you as a child of his. Shame will make you believe lie after lie after lie about yourself, about the fact you can never get out of this, out of the fact that your sin's in a completely different category than everybody else. You know, I have never found anything positive about shame. 
Now be careful to note the difference here. Because there's a difference between shame and what the Bible calls sorrow. This was missing from the original diagram, okay? There's a difference between feeling bad and feeling sorrow. Sorrow is an appropriate response when we choose to break God's heart. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but sinning, should, that should grieve us. We should mourn that. The Bible says this about godly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see some justice done. At every point, you've proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Godly sorrow brings about an eagerness to stay away from whatever it was that caused guilt inside of you. There's a righteous anger, there's an, there's an urgency, a longing, a concern that somehow I'm gonna, I have to allow God to break this sin cycle because I'm sick and tired of this hamster wheel that I just keep going around and around. When we want to get unstuck, there's only one path that will take you there. Confession and repentance. We don't like talking about this. This is where people get all freaked out. What do you mean confession in repentance. There's a difference. So let me define them differently for you, okay? Confession is when I say it out loud and I own it. I defined it this way. When I own my wrong before God and people. Now, some of you are like, come on, can't we just keep it between God and us? It's a whole lot easier. I remember when I made amends with my 12-step sponsor, John Havlin. Then I understood why God asked me to come clean in front of another human being because I needed to see what grace and forgiveness look like in human form so that I could fully open myself to it when it came in eternal form. Confession that's insincere, that just sends you right back into that sin cycle again. You just start flirting with the next idea. Honestly, when confession is insincere, the truth is, we're sorry that we got caught. We're not sorry about what we did. You know, confession can happen before people, but you can only get forgiveness from Jesus. Can I say that again? Confession can happen before people, but you only get forgiveness directly from Jesus. Confession's good for the soul, but it only has eternal implications when you do it with the one who actually has the architecture to create your soul. Sincere confession leads to earnest repentance, and that's when you own your sin, and then you have to do something. Just in spite of just thinking that we just have to confess it, then we have to reject it. We have to repent from it. Here's a definition of repentance. It's changing the course of my wrong towards God. So I've confessed in front of all of you multiple times that growing up as a kid, I struggled with lying. I just, I just told stories. I liked lying. It made life easier as long as I could keep track of the lies that I had told. I lied because it worked for me. I lied and convinced myself that somehow I was actually helping other people have better moments in their lives because I would take a little moment and make it a little bit better and like, look at the gift I'm giving this person. God must certainly appreciate my effort. I did more than just tell white lies. 
I covered the whole color spectrum. I mean, I just went, I was like a color wheel from Sherwin-Williams. I mean, it was just, look at this guy. He just can paint all these pictures. I just made stuff up. And then I ran smack dab into Scripture. Do you know what God says about liars? The Bible says he abhors, he hates lying lips and the person that's attached to the lips when they're lying. Like, it's just like, wow. So I had to make a decision. I could just come and confess my sin. God, I did it wrong. Told another story. Sorry about that. You know, oops, I did it again. Or I could come to him in confession saying, I understand that you hate this because you want me to live a life of honesty. So not only am I going to confess that I got it wrong, I'm going to turn 180 degrees away from dishonesty, and I'm going to have a perpetual pursuit of truth for the rest of my life. And that is not going to be easy to someone who comes by lying naturally. But that's the work of it, right? It's a 180 degree turn. Now, this cycle is so easy to get stuck in. Where you just have to try and figure it out. Yeah, I mean, am I confessing and repenting all these different pieces? Let me share with you some common sources of guilt and shame that you may not even think about very much. Here's one that may surprise you. We talked about it last week. It's your marriage. By the way, thank you to everybody who emailed me or texted me support after last week's marriage, our last week's message on marriage, because we stirred a few things up. I mean, you start talking truth like that, it's like I had some people saying, thanks for ruining my Super Bowl, you know? Ended up talking all afternoon and evening. You're welcome. It's just wow, right? But thanks to everybody. It's just like, yeah, we like it when you just lay it down. I had a couple people say, thanks for telling us to get busy. Now, if you don't know what that means, you should go back to last week's message and listen. Because you might actually be surprised at the fact that it actually means what you're thinking it means. So anyways, that was last week. All right. And we talked last week, especially in the area in our marriages of reckless words, errant words and reckless behavior. And I'm going to tell you something. The answer to those old wounds is to use the same confession and repentance you use with God with your spouse. You know, let's be honest. If you've been married for a while, I'll, I know one thing about you. You probably have some regrets. You probably said some things you wish you could have taken back. You've probably done some things that you wish you could do over. I mean, who would, if you're married, who wouldn't pay for a reset button, right? Well, I'd just love to be able to just rewind the last seven seconds. Just go back and take another run at it. You, you know you can actually do that, right? It's called uh, repenting, saying you were wrong and saying, can I actually retract what I just did in the last seven seconds? I'd like to go back and try it again. And then it opens the door for this really cool thing called grace from your partner, which is also biblical, and it all usually ends up working out really, really good. You should try that. And I should preach on that sometime. So anyways, back to the outline. I mean, we all have regrets. We all have regrets, and God keeps calling us to die to ourselves and our will and our selfishness and embrace the beauty of laying down our life and actually serving one another. I mean, the best way to keep guilt and shame from showing up in your marriage is to actually do the work on the front end. 
We, we, we had the other thing. Todd talked about the fact we've got like, this is retreat weekend, right? Because it's President's Day weekend. So it's retreat weekend. We got hundreds of people that are gone on retreats. But we also had a marriage workshop. People gave up a Friday and a Saturday to come and do the hard work. Can I tell you, to, to those couples that actually did that and now you're back for church, you're my heroes. You're doing the work on the front end. I wish I would have done the work on the front end. There's another opportunity. If you're thinking about getting married, can I tell you something? From somebody who's been married for like 26 plus years, do hard work on the front end to really know the person that you're marrying. Like really do the work. And there's another opportunity. It's called the Prepare Marriage Workshop. Because if you don't do the work on the front end, I'm going to tell you something. There will be guilt and shame wrapped inside of your relationship. You know why? Because you're both human. I know right now you think you're perfect. Because that's the way it is when you're engaged, right? You think you're perfect? <laughs> Just wait. Give me a call. We'll talk about it in a little while. Because all those cute little things that are so endearing right now that they're doing, in about a year, <laughs> you're going to consider murder over those little cute little things. I'm going to promise you. You don't know what I'm talking about? Refer to last week's message. Let's keep going, Okay. So your marriage, that's where it shows up. Here's another thing that may surprise you, your parenting. I once heard a wise pastor say this. As your children get older, here's what parents tend to do. They take too much responsibility when their kids get it wrong and too much credit when their kids get it right. That's just wisdom. My kids are getting older. I'll be honest with you. I have regrets. There were moments when I just wish I would have decided to play the parent cards instead of the friend cards. Parents, your kids don't need you to be their buddy. They need you to be their parent. I wish I would have done it differently. I have some regrets in that area. I gave up some moments. Some moments when I should have been there in a different way, and instead I found myself you know, distracted and going in a different direction. But parents, can I tell you something? Don't let the moments that you missed push you to miss more. That doesn't make any sense. Press in now, once again. The answer here is being proactive. And what do you know? We got a little thing for parents. It's called Rules and Relationships. Can I tell you what that, what that little workshop is? It's a place where you can find out that there's a balance between God's call. God's call is kind of here in the center. And it's how to find the balance between ruling with an iron fist and letting the lunatics run the asylum. Okay? And somewhere between there, that's called parenting. All right? And it's a miracle that God lets any of us do that. But here's the toughest one, right? It's your past. Can I share something with you that you may not know? Every other human being in this room right now has a past too. Some things they're proud of and some things that they're not. We all have a museum of memories that we just wish we, we could kind of go through and, and toss a few out. We just wish that, that some of the memories in our brain could actually go away. Can I give you really, really good news? They can because God likes to take broken memories, redeem and transform them into something completely different to the point where you can't even recognize them because you're using, for, using them for something that only God can use them for. Under the blood of Jesus, they actually can be removed, but let's talk it through. When you're dealing with your past, you must acknowledge that not dealing with your past actually robs you of your future. Okay? Why is that? Why does, does ignoring your past actually cost you your future? It's because you're focusing more on what happened behind you than what's in front of you. 
Philippians chapter 4, written by a guy with murder in his past. And then he becomes the world's greatest missionary, and God inspires him to write these words. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, and let's be honest, the Apostle Paul had a lot to forget. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Now let's understand the difference between the two. You don't just get to forget them and leave them behind. What you do is this. You leave the guilt, shame, and condemnation behind and you take the lesson with you. And that's when things can become beautiful. Paul says, forgetting what's behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I tell people this all the time. You need an automobile perspective. How big is the rear view mirror in your car? How big is your windshield? Which direction do you look to for each one of those? That's a clue on how to do life. Hmm, can I get an amen on that one? Right? Do we sometimes have to look back? Yeah. There's some things I needed to learn. Small rearview mirror. Windshield looking forward. Great perspective because that's where God's taking you. What does the enemy like to do? He likes to flip them around. He wants you to take the rearview mirror and just stare into it. He doesn't want you looking forward into what God has for you in the future. We need an automobile perspective. Secondly, you have to face the truth. Classic verse. You guys know this. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess. Let's back up. What was that first word? If. So apparently that's conditional. Apparently God's not 100% convinced that that's going to be our default mode. But that's what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess. Here's the reality. You have to move beyond the if. You have to face the truth. You've got to be able to say it out loud. You, you've got to be able to say, I sinned. I broke God's law. You've got to be able to name it. Anybody remember the old TV show, Happy Days? Yeah. Remember Arthur Fonzarelli trying to apologize? I was rude. <laughs> Couldn't say it. Followers of Jesus, we need to be okay with saying it. Not, I'm sorry, because then the question is, sorry for what? No, it's, I was wrong. I was wrong. I have to face the truth that what I did was sinful, but that's only half of it. Then you have to accept the truth. Because I'm going to remind you of something again. There was a cost to that little sin. My little white lie cost Jesus Christ his life. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, He Himself bore our sin in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by His wounds you have been healed. That's your past right there. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have, oh I love this, do you, do you see what it says? But now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. I remember the moment when I finally got a clue. I'm like, what in the world am I doing living out here on my own when God has a house waiting for me and a warm embrace from my Father and forgiveness at the ready? Why am I out here in the muck of my sinful decisions when I could be at home with Him? And Peter celebrates this. Think about that for a second. Remember Peter? What did Peter do when the chips were down? 
He denied Jesus, not once, not twice, three times, and now he's saying, but there's hope. Because you can come home to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul, and he will not reject you. If he's not going to reject you, this is what has to happen. You have to accept grace, not guilt. You have to accept grace. Jesus wants to declare you not guilty and free. The Bible says this in 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I was standing in in the wings, listening to the Saturday night, President's Day long weekend crowd sing. I could have swore I heard it come out of your mouth. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I'm a Canadian. I get snow. It's blindingly white. He paid for your past. So two little pieces for you. Number one, the next time the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Let me say that again. The next time the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. And then moving forward, understand this, our past will either be Satan's greatest weapon or God's most powerful tool. I mean, the worst of you can actually be redeemed to help somebody. Only God can pull that off. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but I have a heart for pre-processed religious people that enjoy lying to themselves. You know why I have a heart for them? Been there, done that, bought a t-shirt. I, I, can, I can help you write that book. I love watching pre-processed religious people suddenly stop lying to themselves, actually believe what's in their Bible, and all of a sudden it's just like, you mean I don't need to be full of guilt and shame anymore? Are you kidding me? I mean, as a kid growing up in church, I felt bad for, for feeling good. I felt bad for feeling bad. I felt bad for not feeling anything at all. I mean, I just felt bad. And when my Bible actually said to me that it was for freedom, that Christ had set me free, that sin no longer needed to be my master, and I could have a brand new boss, I'm like, sign me up for that. Because, wow. I know that pain. I get that. And I think every single week, boy, if my story can help you and give you hope, you know what that means? That helps me move forward. It's selfish sometimes. But I'm just, God can use my busted story. Imagine, imagine how he may be able to use your story. I don't care how bad it was broken. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but we don't keep score when it comes to brokenness of Christ the King. I mean, you think you've got a bad story? Most of us would go, we'll hear your story and raise you chronic back pain. I mean, you got nothing on the rest of us. This is what the Bible says about your story. We did this in Revelation this whole summer. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now have come salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. 
for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. To those of you who know Jesus, it's time for you to open your mouth and start telling your story. Not of how bad you were, but of how great God was. You know, we've been telling the wrong story for a long time. We're going to go overtime tonight. Just deal with it, okay? Because I'm kind of fired up now. I wasn't feeling very good. And I just, so I, I got a friend who's an atheist. And he just takes, he struggles with all of the stories of, of how God treated people. He's like, I can't believe that, that, that God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. He said, you, you missed it. It's true. He's a holy God. And they had to leave because of what they did, but you missed it. The miracle is God gave them clothes. God made a sacrifice to cover them. Because of what they did, you missed it. You focused on everything you thought God did wrong. You, you'd never thought for a second about what, all the beautiful things God did right. What about Cain and Abel? I mean, what do you do with that verse? Cain, you know, God hated and Abel he loved. I said, you missed it again. The fact that he even loved one of them. That's a miracle. None of us deserves anything from God. And the fact that we bring him this bundle of busted garbage from our past, and he says, bring me your toy. I'm going to take that stuff and I'm going to rework it. I'm going to turn it into something beautiful. If you need proof of God's grace, think about the fact that a former habitual liar has a microphone and a Bible. That's a miracle. That's a miracle of God. I mean, if you read that little piece of Revelation 12, Jesus wins and his story is the one that sets us free. Because it's not your testimony about how good you're doing now. It's always your story of God's grace in this moment. It's His story. He's the one who sets us free because of this truth. Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody just like, not you sure there's not even a little bit of condemnation? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means this. If you're experiencing condemnation, it's not coming from God. It comes from the pit of hell. It's a lie of the devil. God doesn't condemn his kids. He redeems his children. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives you life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Here's the bottom line. You don't have to be stuck. You can be free, and the, he who the Son sets free is free. We don't do Winnie the Pooh theology of Christ the King. We do Winnie the Pooh honesty. Because sometimes we're stuck. Can everybody see this last little piece here? Randy and Scott, our graphic designers, they got a hold of my little diagram, and I love what they did with it. Does anybody, anybody see the shape of the arrow? Godly sorrow through the cross 
leads us to sincere confession and repentance. And when God sets us free, we experience true freedom. You don't need to live on the hamster wheel anymore. So here's what we're going to do. The band is pacing in the wings. So I'm going to invite them to come out here and join me. It's 7.03. I'd like to borrow 210 more seconds of your life. Because I can't, I can't understand how someone with that, with God saying, this is my plan for you, and this is how I look at you, that you're not just this, this predicated little piece of garbage that stumbled or rolled out of your path. The fact that he actually looks at you and says, that one would be mine, and that one would be mine, and she's mine, and he's mine, and that one's mine, and that one's mine, and that one's mine, and that one's going to be mine, they just don't know it yet. And that one's being prayed for by that one who's mine. So they're going to be mine pretty soon too because they don't even know it yet. But I mean, it would just seem like if God can do all of that, how cool would it be if we could just take a moment and say, Christ is enough. Enough for me. Enough for you. Enough for everyone with a broken past. And and enough for everyone with a glorious future. Small rearview mirror, large windshield. Let's pray. God, thank you for this evening on this beautiful long weekend. Beautiful in the fact that we got to be with you, maybe not because of the weather, but beautiful because we are here with you. Lord, as we take these next moments and simply say, more than enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Father, I pray that out of our heart, would pour praise and worship. Lord, I thank you that shame is not from you. Condemnation, not from you. Godly sorrow sometimes. And Father, if anyone here needs to lay something before you, I pray that they would know that it will be beautifully received and graciously forgiven. So God, may we celebrate you in the power of your name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together and worship.